0: Hey, did you grow up in church? Are you questioning the faith, traditions, and values that were instilled in you as a child or even later as an adult? If so, then this podcast is for you. Hi, my name is Fresca and I grew up as a pastor's kid in the evangelical church. This is my podcast, Confessions of a Pastor's Kid. Come along with me on my journey of deconstructing my faith, but also decolonize my faith as an Asian Filipino American. I will be interviewing Asian American voices, as well as other thought leaders and creatives. All kinds of questions of faith will be welcomed here, as I will explore beliefs all over the spectrum, from Christian to atheism and everything in between. The most important thing I'm learning is that I don't have to know all the answers. I'm focusing on the journey, not the destination. I hope this podcast will resonate with you, and if not, I hope you're willing to learn. So please subscribe and follow my podcast and follow me on instagram at confessions of a pastor's kid underscore all lowercase and no apostrophe thanks for tuning in and listening to the podcast confessions of a pastor's kid hello hello welcome to Confessions of a Pastor's Kid podcast. Again, my name is Fresca and this is episode 4. And recently I was able to get my MacBook to start working again somehow. It wasn't charging at first, but then the other day I decided to plug the charger back in and then all of a sudden it charged. So I don't have to get a new laptop anymore, which means I've been editing. I edited this last podcast on my laptop, which is way easier than editing a podcast on my tiny iPhone 11. So I'm really happy about that. And I've been able to interact with some of you on Instagram who've listened to my podcast. And I just wanted to say, I'm so grateful that there are people listening and I wasn't even expecting more than 20 people to listen to my podcast. So thank you for tuning in and willing to listen to what I have to say. So in this episode, this is episode four and in this episode, I am interviewing my friend Hannah and her Instagram account is endless wanderer and she shares with me her transracial adoptee story. She is a Chinese American who was adopted by white parents in the early 1990s. And so she shares her story on what it's like to look Asian, but not have a culture that actually is Asian. So her story, even though her and I probably look exactly the same to other people, Her and I grew up totally different and ate totally different food and just grew up in a very different environment. And I think that, you know, Asians, we know we're not a monolith. We know that we're different from each other. But the problem in America is that if you look Asian, then you're treated the same. So that's kind of what I've been observing in my journey so far is that the way that people in America view Asians is all the same but in reality we're not the same and this is exactly the case with my friend Hannah where she looks like me but she was still she still received the same kind of racism she still received the same kind of jokes about being Asian even though she had no upbringing of being asian at all she was white so it didn't matter if she grew up with white parents and in a white culture she wasn't white enough because she actually wasn't white she didn't look white so i'm interested to share with you her story with you and her and i are actually both pastors kids with the southern baptist convention so We have a few things in common so I hope you enjoy this episode so without further ado um, we'll go straight into the episode I hope you enjoy it okay I know all right so today I will be talking with Hannah um, as known as Endless Wanderer on Instagram
1: thank you Hannah so much for being here with me today Thanks for inviting me. I'm super excited to get into this conversation.
0: Thanks yeah. for thinking of me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't, I'm not really sure how I came across your Instagram necessarily, but I love hearing about your story, about your adopted adoptee story and that you're a social worker in New York City. So I'm, I'm excited to learn more about you and, and the kind of work that you're doing over there.
1: Well, thanks. Like I said, I'm really happy to be here and thank you again for inviting me. So I'm really curious to know how,
0: how is was it like growing up as a transracial adoptee? And also, do you want to um, talk about what, what that term means, interracial adoptee?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, so personally, I am adopted from China. I was adopted as an infant, Uh, from the Anhui province in the 90s. Um, So for those of you that don't really um, get in on the adoption community much, we're very vast, but China uh, opened up for international couples to adopt um, children in the early 90s. So I was actually a little bit. My parents were a little bit ahead of the curve, so my dad is a Southern Baptist pastor in Texas, and they had been wanting and praying for a child or a way to expand their family for a couple of decades. At that point, oh, wow. uh, so. Eventually, they came across an adoption agency and they found out that China had the one child policy, which I'm sure Mm -hmm. is kind of more of a widespread thing now. Um, The policy actually ended in
0: 2016,
1: but um, the the overarching narrative was that China has a surplus of baby girls that aren't wanted and Mm, are just left on the side of the road and need parents. So that was what my parents had heard. And so they packed a couple of bags and went to China and adopted me. uh, The whole process was about nine months. So about the time that uh, my mom would have carried a child to term anyways. Oh, okay. So were you were you a newborn when when they adopted you or i was seven months old Oh, so okay. i was st- what they're um as of right now um i think it takes a lot longer to adopt a child from china you can't do it like that in like nine months like my parents did it takes um, a lot more time now why is that is there just more paperwork you have to fill out or Since it was so new in the 90s and it was kind of its own piloted program, I think, there was still a lot of kinks out of the system that had to be worked out. And on top of that, international adoption nowadays aren't super, they're not, it's not super popular anymore. There's been a lot Mm. of controversy um, about white saviorism whenever it comes to adopting transracially. Um, So mostly um, just the overall power dynamics of a white upper middle class couple going over to a sending country or a third world or developing country. And essentially it commodifies children is what a lot of the overarching arguments are today.
0: Yeah, so transracial adopting means that you're you're a different ethnicity than the parents that adopt you is that correct
1: yes and transracial adoptees can come from international or domestic adoption um just um being adopted primarily it's primarily children of color Mm -hmm. adopted into white adoptive families
0: you were adopted from china
1: you're chinese but you grew up with white parents yes okay and I grew up uh, in the South, so having the Southern culture definitely plays into my adoption story as well.
0: Okay, yeah. So, how how was that like? Were you um, were you like the only Asian within the ten mile radius? <laughs> Something because sometimes I feel that way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it definitely felt like that. I knew that there were other Asians. There were other Asian families. Um, and the town I was raised in had a decent sized Asian population. But I just, I didn't find that I fit in with them very well. Mm. I didn't feel like I could, um, I just couldn't relate, especially as a kid and to all the other Asian families. Is that correct? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. I just felt like I couldn't relate to the other Asian families because they would be like, oh, my mom did X, Y, and Z. That's so typical Asian of her. And I would be like, well, my mom's a white soccer mom, so I don't oh, really. Oh, I see. I can't really relate there. Or um, or whenever they would have me over for dinner and I would get really, really self-conscious about like using chopsticks um, mm. or or being corrected on table etiquette. Just really small, minute things that you don't really think about much as a kid or you don't think about being self-conscious about them. Like being Asian, but not being quote unquote Asian, not feeling Asian enough. Mm. I didn't realize that that was not a universal aspect um, amongst the Asian peers. So, um, growing up, I mostly clung to white people, um, as naturally, naturally, I tried to assimilate myself, um, act white, whatever that means, quote, unquote. Right,
0: right. Yeah. And and yeah, I could see how you can naturally do that, especially since you were raised by by white parents. So Mm I can, and it wasn't their
1: fault. It was just
0: how they raised me, how they were raised. Right. They, they're going to raise you how they, they know how to raise children in their exactly. own way. Yeah. So I, oh, okay. Yeah. Cause I can see the, dif- those differences that you noticed about your experience that differ from an Asian American with Asian parents. And that, that brings me to this quote that I, I saw that you posted um, two months ago that I thought was interesting. It's by um, the Instagram, the underscore impress underscore hand. She said, being an Asian transracial adoptee means I got to experience all the painful parts of being Asian in America without any of the good things. I got all of the anti-Asian racism and trauma without any of the family, food, culture, language, customs, or community. And when I read that, I was just like, my heart sank for you, especially about the food part. <laughs> like, so yeah, I can't imagine not growing up around Asian food. And so, what did what did you think about that quote?
1: It really resonated with me because I didn't really have much of an interaction with an Asian culture until I went to college. Mm-hmm. So when I went into college, uh, one of my best friends, love her to death, um, is. She's Filipino and she okay. introduced me to her food, her family, um, what she would call her brothers, what she would call, like, mm-hmm. kuya and ate, and mm-hmm. all of those words that she had for her family members, as well as how to use a rice cooker. Um, <laughs> because we were making dinner one night and she said, Hannah, just go put the rice on. And I was like, Okay, where's your pot and pan? And she was like, "No, <laughs> use the rice cooker." And I was like, "The what now?" Oh. <laughs> I later caught that rice cooker on fire. Oh. <laughs> and I I still feel bad about it. They're like, "Okay, okay, it's all good." Like <laughs> Well, her <laughs> explaining understand. to her mom how she was like, "My roommate my roommate caught our rice cooker on fire. I need another one." And how <laughs> Her mom was like, wait, I thought you said your roommate was Chinese. And she and how she explained to her mom, no, she's she was raised by white people. She's adopted. It's oh uh. uh,
0: okay. That makes sense. That's cute.
1: <laughs> so her explaining that to her family, they kind of embraced me um and taught me about their food, their culture. Got me little house shoes to where Aww. I wouldn't wouldn't have to walk in the house barefoot and all of that good stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. And oh, I wanted to ask you, sorry, about your about this past lunar new year, as I think you mentioned that it was your first official time celebrating it. Is that correct?
1: It was, it was. Um I've been very fortunate like in my life to have been able to get roommates by just literally by potluck, by finding them on Facebook, by just out of the blue, just have these wonderful people come into my life who I feel comfortable sharing my adoption story with right off the bat and Mm -hmm. who will just kind of embrace like the idea that I am learning as an adult. Mm. So my current roommate invited me to partake in her Lunar New Year celebration with her and her friends. Uh, her family is kind of scattered all over the country. Mm-hmm. So she decided to have her own Lunar New Year here. She also um, made us handmade homemade moon cakes for uh, the new moon festival back in the fall as well. And oh, okay. those were super labor intensive. And yeah. I was just like, these are delicious Thank you <laughs> so much. Um, so she has taught me so much about cooking and inviting me to that, um, to that Lunar New Year. It felt, I didn't want to ask her if we could celebrate it in our own home, since Mm. I knew that her family wasn't necessarily here in New York and I don't have any Asian family. Mm -hmm. It, with Lunar Lunar New Year, it just feels like such an intimate family holiday and I didn't Mm. want to impose
0: I see, yeah. And
1: so the other New Year's that I had actually attended to whenever I was a child almost felt like – almost like a comic version of it, like Mm -hmm. a parody version of it, because it would be – through organizations where white adoptive parents would want to try to incorporate some aspect of their adopted children's culture Mm. into their lives so me and my parents would end up driving for two hours to get mm -hmm. to a Chinese buffet restaurant they would hand out little red envelopes and I was there with a bunch of stranger kids that I would be like who is this what are we doing why are we here (laughs)
0: were they also adoptees as well
1: they were oh, all, I see. So all of us were just kind of having this weird, like, uh, <laughs> what do we do? This is the weirdest play date I've ever been on. Um, oh and goodness. like, and they were raised by white people as well. Yes, exactly. Oh, I see, In I Texas. See. And our parents were like over there in the corner with their, with their, um, whatever food that they decided to get from the buffet just kind of like staring at us like we were zoo animals <laughs> oh in a- my goodness like what are they gonna do next like- what are they gonna do are they gonna a- interact with each other i don't know i don't know any mandarin do you know i just know that we pass out the envelopes what's happening <laughs> oh goodness oh. so <laughs> yeah that was so it was just so great to have something that felt more authentic and that felt genuine, yeah, for a Lunar New Year celebration.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I wanted to segue into um, to how was it like growing up as a pastor's kid in, in SBC and in, in the Southern Baptist Church? Because I also grew up in a Southern Baptist Church as well, so I know we have some similarities there. Yeah. Did you feel um, what kind of pressure did you feel as a pastor's kid?
1: Oh all of the pressure I'm like I'm sure like as a pastor's kid you like um you noticed like your pastor dad going and Mm -hmm. um having his pastor face like on Sundays you have to go and greet people when he would have to be courteous to people like whenever people were having a hard time you could it was almost like this this mode that they slip into like a facade kind of yes exactly and I feel like for me I developed one of those myself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. my dad had the pastor facade I had the pastor's kid facade yes and so it was almost it was basically a mask that I felt that no one really knew what I was thinking Um, And that what I thought didn't really matter to anyone because the only thing that did matter was keeping that facade Mm -hmm. up, keeping that pastoral image, that community together. Like I felt the weight of keeping a community together on my little Asian shoulders by the time I was probably seven.
0: Wow. Yeah. So not only did you have the pressure of being a pastor's kid, looking good for your parents, making sure that you're like behaving and following all the rules, but on top of that, being a different ethnicity in this predominantly white culture, I can see um, all that pressure coming together.
1: So, Mm, sorry. Did
0: you ever feel like you were a poster child for that ideal like evangelical going to another country adopting an international child bringing them to America and then like kind of having to like perform and be like this poster child of like yes I am transformed into like this really good Christian girl
1: and and that and all that Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like there would be families who would ask my parents about international adoption and they would be like, well, Hannah's doing okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm doing great. (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) Like don't let the mask slip because they won't see that. Like I have a lot of like anxiety. I have a lot of depression. I have a lot of like all these things that are Mm -hmm. building up that I can't let others see because in my head how it translated was if i let that mask slip they're going to see that maybe adoption isn't a great thing maybe mm. maybe the pastor was wrong about that and the pastor can't be wrong mm. like i feel okay. like there's just like this like with a pastor with any community member mm. or any community leader basically, there's like this weird expectation for them to be perfect. And as soon as that expectation is lost, or as soon as that like, paradigm shifts, or your expectations are shattered, Mm -hmm. it somehow would be of consequence of people falling, falling away from faith. Wow. So that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) That's what built up inside my head, Mm -hmm. inside my tiny little seven-year-old brain wow yeah that's a lot of pressure for a seven-year-old girl
0: (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I can see how people in the church they really do put their pastors and the families on a pedestal I feel like it's wrong for the church to put so much pressure on a child that especially didn't ask to be a role model in any way that didn't ask to be the example like for you you didn't ask to be the example of the perfect transracial adoptee and i feel like also for me like i didn't ask to be an example for the other kids in church which meant that i couldn't rebel or or actually explore life like so for me i i was kind of boy crazy in high school and my my parents didn't allow me to date at all and they didn't allow me to go to school dances. I, I don't know, but for most Baptists, like dancing is wrong.
1: I don't know if you're in no that moment. No. It's a big no-no. Yeah. no no. Da- yeah. No dancing, no drinking. Sometimes yes.
0: beards.
1: No, sometimes what? No beards. Have oh, you ever no met uh, oh, no beards.
0: Baptists. no tattoos. Yes, no big tattoos. No no. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah basically like I think of Footloose have you seen the original version
1: yes I have I was telling one of my social work classmates about about my hometown one time and they were like are you from the town of Footloose (laughs) exactly exactly that's like what on earth (laughs) yeah no dancing what is this yes that's
0: exactly how I feel like I feel like I live the Asian version of that, so like, the no dancing, and, like, yeah, like, as a pastor's kid, when you're trying to just, um, you're given all these expectations when you're super young, you're expected to follow these rules, but at the same time, you're still a human being. You're still like a normal kid that wants to, like, explore normal things in life. Like, for me, it was, like, I really wanted to go to a school dance, and I wasn't allowed, I wasn't actually allowed to go to my senior prom, but I actually snuck out to my own senior prom. <laughs> yeah, I had a bigger, I had an older brother that like, that covered for me and everything. But yeah, like just the, um, I, I felt like it was just so much work just to be a normal kid as a pastor. Oh,
1: absolutely. Um, I took mm-hmm. the church bus to prom. My dad drove me and a couple of my other church friends to church uh, in the church van. Wow. to prom, <laughs> And he chaperoned. Um, and oh, my, my prom date had to come to church to meet my dad during Wednesday night church. Oh, <laughs> I don't think I've ever processed that out loud before, but I'm like, Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh
0: man. Yeah. That's definitely one of those memories where you just like, don't want to
1: think about ever again oh absolutely also this is like in my prom date he was christian he just didn't go to my church Mm. so obviously my dad had to go and check him out first to make sure that he was the right type of christian (laughs) oh goodness yeah i I feel those methodists
0: oh yeah oh (laughs) no never or not
1: absolutely not
0: or pentecostals anyone speaking in tongues oh Absolutely not, no. Out, out the door, no, <laughs> not even an option. <laughs> so are you are you attending church right now or even like
1: pre-COVID, were you attending church or what's your relationship with church currently? So my relationship with church currently is I was looking for that unicorn type of a church that I felt really could... Um, that really lined up with my values, because Mm -hmm. where I grew up in Southern Baptist evangelical space, it didn't really align with my values as a social worker, Mm -hmm. and that's when I actually started decolonizing, was whenever I got into social work school. Even though I was in, I went to Baylor University, so I went to a Christian university. But people Mm -hmm. would tell me that the social work school was too liberal. They were too accepting of X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Um, And the verses that always resonated to me growing up were don't love in words, but love in actions. Mm -hmm. And so like actually walking the walk, not talking the talk was a huge part of my own journey through faith. Mm Um, and so I wanted to find a church that I felt wasn't investing in things like marketing and like um big sound systems and things like that. But we're actually
0: buildings, yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. But we're actually um and also you can't do that in New York City. You just can't oh, there's no landscaping the, in there, right? <laughs> no, there's no landscaping. There is no buildings. The churches that I felt most comfortable in met in an elementary school and had social workers in leadership and got political and talked about the hard things. Whereas I felt like a lot of the churches that I searched for in college just kind of brushed over that. Yeah, because Um, for
0: some reason in evangelicalism, they, they never touch on social justice which is like really ironic because the bible is all about social justice like taking care of the orphans the widows and the poor but yet they the especially SBC
1: is not is, is like the opposite of social justice <laughs> in America like especially like whenever you mention taking care of the orphans and the poor like mm. I feel like a lot of people especially that I knew growing up interpret a interpreted taking care of the orphans and the widows as adopting them whereas mm. what about strengthening the communities where you're trying to adopt them from and maybe instead of separating them from their families strengthening and giving their families the resources that they have to be uh, that they'd be able to keep their kids instead of adopting wow. them how how about not creating orphans mm not creating orphans through colonialism and imperialism, but instead really investing in these communities. So that's always, that verse always kind of stuck out to me because, yeah, um, right. I was called an orphan a lot. I still am mm-hmm. called an orphan, but I very, very much probably have some living relatives. Yeah, somewhere out there. Which is a very hard reality. Um mm-hmm to talk about, especially with my adoptive family.
0: But I I see that you brought up a very important point. Like there's a difference um, in taking care of an orphan by adopting them versus going back into the country and empowering the community and giving them the resources um, that they need to actually take care of their own kind so that the community can retain their own culture and language and, and customs as opposed to erasing all of that. Which mm-hmm. um, do you feel like that that happened to you?
1: Yeah, with the cultural and heritage erasure, that one hundred percent happened to me. It wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't my adoptive parents' fault. And so, like, sure. even talking about that, I know that people will have a tendency to be like, "Well, it wasn't their fault that you weren't raised in a more diverse community. It wasn't their fault." And I'm not saying that it's their fault. Mm-hmm. It's no one's fault. It's just collateral damage of what happens through family separation and what happens through such policies it's nobody's fault and I always think that as humans we have a tendency to want to try to find someone to blame not something Mm. not a system not a circumstance but a person Mm. and really want to demonize that person which I mean if you if you look at the bible it's hate the sin, love the sinner, that kind of a thing. The things that they teach us, but are we yeah. really actually doing it if we're demonizing things like my birth family or my birth mm. culture for getting me to where I am? And who is to blame for that loss? No one is to blame for that loss. It's just a really crappy situation. Yeah, would you say
0: it's definitely a system? There's something wrong with the system. Would you say that's correct?
1: Yes, and it goes so much into global politics that my brain can't even wrap around. A yeah, of it. right. So much of it goes into capitalism, global mm. global politics, imperialism, economics. Um, economics. It's it's a huge, huge thing that I can't even begin to contemplate. But what I do know is that from my own experience of being collateral in Mm. global systems is that we can't blame people. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because we could only make decisions on the information that we have in the in the moment. And then but later on, yeah, we might get more information. And I think it's like about like growing and and always Mm -hmm. willing to learn how we could always be better, how we can always create a system better, which exactly which brings me to my next question, which I'm, I'm really interested in is how, um, what made you become a social worker? And what is, what do you feel like is your main mission as a social worker in the inner city, especially in
1: New York city? Oof. Oof. <laughs> I was, I was nervous about this question. Not really?
0: Anyway, <laughs> you, any origi- you want to answer it up to you. What, up to you. Ah,
1: what originally led me to social work and like at no white saviors on Instagram mm-hmm. would totally eat my lunch on this, but mission trips. Uh huh. I wanted to be a white savior, which I'm not a white savior. I can never be a white savior. I can just be a white savior by proxy, which I am trying not to be now. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to undo a lot of undo and unlearn a lot of the things that I was taught about international missions, I wanted to do international missions. I wanted to be an international missionary. And I was like, Mm. social work, that's perfect. Little did I know, little did I know that in getting into social work, I would like my mind would just be completely open and exposed to all of these corrupt systems of colonization Mm -hmm. the history of imperialism just trying to fight for just justice because justice and missions sometimes they just don't mix they Mm. don't go together there's missions through wanting to do good but there is justice in not sending people to another country to go and do labor that a local could do. Yeah. Um, What also really, really kind of got me away from the whole mission space was thinking churches like my dad's sends missionaries to my birth country. Mm. If I didn't have my status as an adoptive daughter of a pastor and I just showed up randomly in China, Mm. what would they think of me? They would think of me as someone who is lost, needs to be saved, needs to know Jesus. And then they would give me the whole marketing spiel. Mm -hmm. And then I would never see them again. That's what short-term missions boiled down to for me. And I have had countless arguments with my pastor dad about this. It's still one of the subjects that we don't, we just don't touch anymore, yeah, because of how deeply ingrained it is within both of us, and how strongly convicted we are on opposite sides of the spectrum.
0: Right, because the the um, the popular argument, like within the last ten years, that I've also had a conversation about, is that short term mission trips are basically like vacations for high schoolers and college students, and like like you said, sending people who um, sending these kids to different countries to build houses or dig wells that have no skills or qualifications or certifications to do that kind of work when that money that they raise because you have to ask your friends and family for money right to fund exactly. for your trip, exactly. right? and that money could actually just go to the community to have the local people um do the work themselves so that they get paid further labor, but also the bringing that community together and empowering them to take care of them themselves, as opposed to relying on America or another Western country to save them.
1: Yes, exactly. Communities do not need more people to help. They need resources. And if if social work has taught me anything in my very short career, I'm still very Young in my career as a social worker. But, like, if anything, I have learned from my very short career and my education and um, getting my master's degree is that if you give people resources and mm-hmm. if the resources are uh, equally and equitably um, divvied out. People Mm -hmm. can help themselves and people can do great things with resources. It's just that people like to think that resources are scarce and that there aren't enough resources or Mm -hmm. certain populations don't deserve resources. Mm -hmm. And that's where the politics comes in. That's where the saviorism comes in. That's where this thing called white urgency comes in.
0: So what is your... um vision um, for your career as a social worker from here on out? Like, what do you see yourself? um, um, I don't know, like what is your vision or your intentions or your desires in this this
1: area? I'm currently in a really interesting quarter life crisis type of a space Mm -hmm. where like social work for me is so diverse And there's just a lot of opportunity and a lot of roles and communities that need to be, need to be given resources. There needs to be a more equitable and just society. Um, I've recently gotten really involved in the adoptee community Mm. and there aren't any there aren't any resources for post-adoption services Mm. because once an adoption happens, it's pretty final. It's up to the adoptive parents to be able to get mental health resources, to obtain the child's original birth certificate if that's what they desire, to be able to acquire like papers and a passport for that child to go and visit their birth heritage and birth countries. Mm. Like, I was very fortunate to have been able to go back to China in summer of 2014 when I was 19. Mm. So I was, I'm very grateful for my parents doing that and for my dad arranging um, a trip and a space for me to go and see my orphanage. Mm. So, but like if adoptees parents aren't into that, Mm -hmm. you're kind of stuck out of luck. Mm -hmm. So, like, adoptees are oftentimes just very, very much left out of these post-adoption conversations, Mm. and they are still left with a lot of trauma from the initial separation, adjustments, and just all of it they're more likely to um be diagnosed with mental health disorders they're more likely to um have identity formation issues so i've been really passionate recently about creating these adoptee spaces because whenever i looked in new york city only maybe two or three agencies offer um, post-adoption services for adoptees Mm and I can't even imagine what the wait list is like for kids <laughs> and I'm an adult and knowing that there is a huge gaping hole and gap in those services for someone like me why not create it myself yeah wow So that's something that I've really been passionate about recently and trying to create and work on it while also doing my day job
0: <laughs> right wow yeah that's really awesome So um, in any closing remarks, what what do you want people to
1: know about transracial adoptees or your experience in general? I think my biggest thing right now, especially in light of the anti-Asian racism, is Mm -hmm. for people to see me as Asian because Mm. racists are going to see me as Asian, unfortunately. Even the people in my community, if they say, no, you're practically white, I'm not. Hmm. I'm not white by proximity I'm not I don't have the protection of whiteness just Mm -mm. because of my face right right um if anything being raised in the mentality that I'm basically white does more damage than it's good right now
0: because it doesn't matter how white you are if you look Asian, if your skin color is darker than white people's, you're still going to be treated as a person of color. It doesn't matter exactly. how educated you are. Exactly. Imagine It doesn't matter how articulate you sound when you speak. If exactly. They'll see your skin color. They're still going to treat you as less than a white person.
1: They're going to judge me. Exactly. And English is my first language. I also speak Spanish. I got the master's degree from Columbia. Like I, I feel like I've accomplished a lot, but whenever it, whenever it comes to that simple thing, someone can reduce me to just being Asian Mm. or being an Asian woman. That would probably be my closing remark.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And just bringing more awareness, especially in, in, in all of the tremendous hate crimes and events, especially the Atlanta shooting that's been happening. This is now the time to make people aware of, of these things that are happening, but also the struggles that Asian Americans have been going through. Because yeah, I, I think our stories are definitely minimized in America. And just because there are Asians who are doctors and nurses and lawyers or all these professionals does not mean that we live this so-called privileged life. If anything, the Asian community has worked, had to work 10 times harder to be accepted, to assimilate into American culture. And and yeah, and I think that's that's the struggle for most Asians. It's just like, and that's why a lot of Asians are smart because they have to work harder because if they're smart, then they're accepted. Because I feel like when you're smart then you're accepted into Amer- American culture and that's how you can like assimilate and so.
1: Like, assimilation should not have been the reason that we had to survive. Mm. Assimilation should not have been the reason that we were able to survive and succeed, but unfortunately, that's how it happened. Wow. Yeah. Because Asians do have a right to themselves, to their culture, to their heritage. And we deserve space also in, in a country that was on stolen land. I am currently sitting on Lenape land. Like, if I am not Lenape, I am obviously um, someone who is sitting on stolen land. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Acknowledging that is the bare minimum thing that I can do.
0: Yeah, I'm also definitely learning about that, like just being aware of the indigenous people that were here before me, the, the people. Yeah, whenever I go to a national park now, I am starting to to educate myself and be aware of like, who were the people that were here in this national park that were kicked out, mm-hmm. basically, of their 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 live their home. Mm. in these national parks and who were they how did they live their lives and in acknowledging wow they were kicked out of their house so that American can have a national park
1: <laughs> yeah like acknowledging that I am on Lenape land um is something that I'm trying to incorporate more in my everyday life I'm glad that we that people are starting
0: to to be aware of that and, and me especially like I'm just beginning to be aware of that I have So much learning to do, but I'm I'm grateful to learn from people like you, especially when you're in this work of social work, which I feel like is the true social justice. (laughs) Like, well, thank you. Yeah, and yeah, I can say that because I I used to be a nurse in the hospital, so I would work with social workers, and and I would see you guys providing the resources um, for these patients outside the hospital that they really need, and just like you guys are actually in the day-to-day like aware of someone's life how they live their lifestyle and the resources resources they need in that day-to-day life which i think is is great to be able to discharge a patient and knowing that there's someone looking out for them in their day-to-day life so yes I appreciate you social workers and what you guys do (laughs) thank you so much yeah thank you so much for joining me today and talking to me yeah and um yeah I look forward to continuing these awesome conversations with you in the future absolutely
1: anytime thank
0: you so much If you have any questions or comments, I would love to hear from you on my Instagram page at confessionsofapastorskid underscore all lowercase or you can email me at confessionsofapastorskid08 at gmail.com and that is also all lowercase. So if you like this podcast, please give me a rating and please hit that subscribe button and thank you so much for listening to my podcast, Confessions of a Pastor's Kid. I'll see you next time.